Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the writers, directors, producers, uh, actors, costume designers, production designers, uh, sound mixers, sound designers, sound editors, film editors, you name it, composers, you name it, and we're talking to them. Uh, in tent poles and our beloved indie films alike, or as I like to call them, our low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films. Um, fun show for you again today. But first, let me remind you, if you're listening now on AdrenalineRadio.com, you can also watch the ever-boring live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. The only fun thing is you get to see my fun tablescapes every week. And this week... Tiny Chef. Tiny Chef is back on our tablescape along with his Mishing Recipe book. Um, also, Stunt Women, the untold Hollywood story, has been made into a film directed by April Wright. It is available everywhere. It is an incredible documentary about the stunt women in the movie and TV industry. It is one of the most comprehensive films you will ever see on stunts. Um, this goes into the history. You've heard me mention some of these legendary women that are profiled uh, in the documentary before. Jeannie Epper and the entire Epper family. They are a dynasty in the stunt industry. Uh, just Hannah Betts. Um, we've got Al uh, Alma Dorsey, Charlene Royer. They are all interviewed, profiled. Jeannie Coulter, um, just an amazing job. Uh, it's written by Nell Sco. It's Nell Scoville, based on Molly Gregory's book, Stunt Woman: The Untold Hollywood Story. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, and April Wright is an incredibly talented director. She has another documentary that's going to be coming out. Uh, sometime in 2021 on old movie palaces. She is very, very gifted um, with her eye and with her storytelling ability and the cohesive synergy and uh, through line that she presents. So uh, I'm thinking that maybe in two weeks you might hear my interview, my very lengthy interview with April on stunt women. But Get the book, see the documentary. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Today, we're going to welcome director Sarah Colt is going to be with us talking about her latest documentary, The Disrupted. Um, and it's a look at three average Americans uh, in, today, in today's economic climate. She started filming this in 2017. Um, we meet three individuals in the documentary. Don, a fifth-generation farmer in Kansas, who, for my money, is the one that everybody is going to connect with, plus the fact he has really cute cows on his farm. Cheryl, who is a, a rideshare driver in Tampa, Florida. And then Pete, who uh, was lost his job with 3M in the Midwest when the company shut down. And it's interesting to see how each one deals with their economic situation. There's no talking heads in, the, in this documentary, which I'm very anxious to talk to Sarah about. No experts are brought in. This is a very personal documentary where we really get to know these individuals over a great length of time. Uh, it was shot by the incredible Tom Bergman. Tom Bergman, I just think his work is fabulous. He was cinematographer on Life Animated, Roger Ross Williams, Oscar-nominated uh, documentary that I had the, the privilege of moderating some Q&As on when that came out. Um, so Sarah will be joining us at the midpoint of the show, and I'm very excited to talk to her about The Disrupted, 
not to be confused with Disrupted, which is another film that's coming out in November, and we're going to have that director here as well. Um, so this is the Disrupted documentary uh, that we're going to talk to Sarah Colt about today. But first, uh, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with director Mark Williams. He previously directed A Family Man that starred Gerard Butler. Uh, he's a writer for... He's written 44 episodes of Ozark, the Emmy-winning TV series. He, was a, he has been a producer forever. The Accountant with Ben Affleck. He produced A Family Man. He produced The Canyon, which was fabulous. And a little film that not too many people liked but I loved back in 2007. He was producer of Flawless with Michael Caine and Demi Moore. Uh, now he is directing... And he's also co-written with Steve Allrich, who he's worked with before. Uh, Allrich was the writer on Bad Karma, which was also produced by Mark, as well as The Canyon. And now the two team up for Honest Thief, which opens this Friday. Stars Liam Neeson, Kate Walsh, Robert Patrick, Jeffrey Donovan, Jai Courtney, and Anthony Ramos, and the debut of Tazzy the Dog. Uh... This is Liam Neeson Fair, and one of the great things about Honest Thief is Neeson is embracing the character that we know and love him for over the years, that action hero, the thinking action hero, uh, the guy that saves his wife, the guy that saves his daughter, uh, the guy that goes after terrorists. Well, here, he's a reform thief. He has robbed banks, small banks to the tune of $9 million and has been nicknamed the In-N-Out Bandit uh, because he gets in and out and nobody has ever figured out how he does it or who he is. But he makes the mis- he falls in love. And we all know what happens when somebody falls in love. He's already reformed, but he wants to stay reformed and he decides he wants to come clean He's never spent any of the money. He wants to turn it over to the FBI. And that's when things go south. Because the FBI agents that he wants to tur- turn them over, turn the money over to and turn himself into, uh, a couple of them have another idea for the money. And it doesn't include t- returning it to the FBI. Um, it is action-packed. It is... a. It, And as usual, it is a thinking man's film. It's wonderful to watch Liam in these thinking roles that are not just going from one set piece to another. There are a lot of practical stunts in this film, a lot of basic car chases. You've got Jai Courtney, who, of course, is one of the best action actors uh, of this generation. He is fantastic. But the real selling point here with Honest Thief is the chemistry between Liam Neeson and Kate Walsh. Kate Walsh is the heart of the film. Uh, Liam, Liam Neeson is the moral compass of the film. And you may find it strange I'm saying that about the protagonist being a thief or reformed thief. But his character of Tom Dolan truly is the moral compass. Kate's character of Annie Wilkins is the heart. And the two of them, why they haven't been on screen together before, I don't know, because their chemistry leaps off the screen. They are phenomenal together. Um, Formal reviews can't come out. They're embargoed until tomorrow morning. I will have a review out sometime this week. Uh, Shelley Johnson is the cinematographer. You might recognize some of Shelley's work. The Last Castle, directed by Rod Lurie. Expendables 2, A Family Man. Uh, a little film called Captain America, or most recently, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Incredible cinematographer, and Shelley paired with Mark is a wonderful collaborative collaboration. Uh, Michael Shaver is the editor. Black Panther, Creed, Fruitvale, Fruitvale Station. His resume speaks for him for him, itself, and of course, the score is by Mark Isham. Um, I can, it, it's comfortable, it's familiar, and it's the kind of film that you're going to want to see this coming weekend. 
because you can just curl up. You know what you're going to get with Liam Neeson, and you're going to love this one. But right now, take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Mark Williams talking about Honest Thief. Debbie. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm holding, uh, holding up. Uh, are you uh, keeping your sanity? Uh, well, my sanity's always always been in question even before the pandemic. So... <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. At least, you, at least you're uh, able to admit that, and that's the first step to getting help. Yeah, you know, after 34 years as a critic, I think my my sanity is definitely in question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what keeps me sane, though, are seeing films like the ones you have produced, the ones you have written, and what you direct. Mark, I, number one, I've been a fan of films that you've produced in the past. But I and I I loved A Family Man. It was a different oh, kind of Jer- it was a different Jerry Butler. I think Rick Waugh is the only one other than you that's really picked up on showing other sides of Jerry. But now with Honest Thief, I just said to Charlie, I said, watching this, it is familiar, it is comfortable, it's exciting, it's a joy to watch and escape. Thoroughly enjoyable, beginning to end. Oh, that's so fun to hear. Thank you for uh, Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I love that. You're keeping Liam in the action genre, but we're getting a more mature Liam. He's one of these actors that actually knows his limitations, but he takes characters that age with his action acumen. And that's really showcased here. And I have to commend you, first of all, on your casting. The minute he and Kate Walsh are on screen together, you fall in love with them. Uh, and by the way, she's 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 a fantastic human being too, which is nice to nice to have that because the chemistry felt real and easy and and uh, you know it's, it's just like she's the light of the movie. So yes, for, for that was that was such the that was the heartbeat of the movie. If if, if that worked, then I thought, I thought we had a shot. You know, um, if uh, if we cared about this relationship, we had a shot. I, I mean, the first thing that I wrote as I was jotting notes during watching the film is terrific chemistry, fun flirting. <laughs> I fell in love with that immediately when I saw that as the opening. And that was after your opening titles, which are fabulous. The montage of the steps that lead up to a heist and the way you go from very, you know, from the extreme close-ups from your ECUs of manipulating wires and chemicals and slowly we get bigger, wider. And you have the voiceover in the background of news reports on these various uh, robberies. It's so well done. You you save exposition, you set the tone right there, give us all the backstory we need. Very efficiently and excitingly constructed. Well, thank you for paying attention. A lot of thought went into all that, but uh, but appreciate you uh, recognizing it. You know, where do you where do you start with a film like The Honest Thief? I mean, you have it's been a few years since you were in the direct in the director's chair. I hope I see you in it more. But you, I know you surround yourself with an incredible team. You got Shelley do as your DP, who is phenomenal, not only with action but with more heartwarming, dramatic fare. So this is a perfect blend here. Um, you bring in Michael Shaver uh, as your editor, the guy's at the top of his game. So, you know, where do you, as, the, as a producer, co-writer, director, start with this film? Well, I really started with the idea. I'm a, I'm a writer at heart. Uh, and that's, where I, that's where I got my start. So for me, I really look at it from a from a character story point of view and try to find try to find something that you know is a, an interesting angle on a new a new character within a, within a genre I mean the, the reality is I, I'm a big fan of the character driven action thriller genre and there's only so many different things you're going to do that haven't been done before mm-hmm. but but it all comes from character so for me it was about finding finding a character that was a little bit you know left of center that we haven't quite seen before and obviously we've seen the bank robber before but 
very very few times have we seen a bank robber who is uh, who, who is uh, willing to go to the great lengths of turning himself in for love. Mm-hmm. For me, when I when when that concept came into my mind, I'm like, what is what would you do for love, and how far would you go? Would you would you give up everything that you've worked so hard for, you know, legally or illegally, illegally, and and uh, and fight for it, fight for it in a way that uh, normally most people don't have to fight for. Well, so, and, and and then and then the second part of that is really, you know, the the theme of the movie is second chances. Is that I feel like we all we all stumble, mm-hmm. we all fall, but. but it, are we allowed to get back up and try again? What I love is that going against the grain, the character of Tom Dolan, Tom is very much the moral compass of this film. Kate's character of Annie is, and their relationship is the heart of the film, but he is actually the moral compass of the film. And that I found very intriguing and fascinating. Uh, I, I would say that, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly with that, and and obviously it's his his conscience that's driving driving the movie, right? I mean, he's he knows what he's done is wrong, and he knows he can't continue on if he really wants to find what you know, most everybody wants to find, which is love. So he uh, he has to do the right thing, and the irony is he runs up against a couple of the guys that. Uh, that don't think that way. And here's where your casting really comes into play here, because this is truly an ensemble piece in every sense of the word. And you bring in Robert Patrick, Jeffrey Donovan. I always love seeing Jeffrey, and he is able to spin a character and his and his perspective on a dime. And you believe it because you see the wheels turning in his head. And we get that here. And you've got Jai Courtney and Anthony Ramos, nobody does walk the line, possible turncoat, bad guy, maybe a little bit of good, better than Jai Courtney in today's batch of actors. And of course you have Tazzy the dog. We cannot overlook Tazzy, because Tazzy is is very key in this film, Mark. It's critical, absolutely critical. (laughs) Tazzy is critical to the development of, of Jeffrey Donovan's character, Agent Myers. That that is really that is our bellwether for Myers and for plot points and turn the emotional uh, turns within the story. I love that how you work that. Thank you for that. I think uh, she she did a fantastic job. It was her debut on film, and she uh, she brought all all the heart and and sweetness and love that that that. she could possibly do for a, for a debut film. And the camera loves her. Yeah. Let's face it. The camera <laughs> yeah. loves her. And I got the sense she loved the camera, too. See, uh, her nickname on the set was One Take Bad because she would just do whatever she was asked to do on the first take and just, just you know, look right at the camera, or look <laughs> right off camera, wherever you want her to be, she'd be there. <laughs> Now, how did were you and Shelley shot listing this? Were you storyboarding this because it is so action heavy um, with your car chases? But then also these, you know, the man on man fights and the shootouts in close quarters and the handheld camera work. It's really, really well done. It's tight. So I'm curious about your working with Shelley in developing your visual tone and orchestrating all of these moving parts. Well, our um, we we definitely shot list. I mean, that's part of our, our process that we do together. In fact, what we tend to do is he does one and I do one, and then me put them together and, and make one one solid one. Um, and then, as far as uh, uh, any any actual storyboarding, it's it's pretty much you know uh, figure drawings that we do on the side of the page um, more more so than than our, our artists drawing things. I think it's a uh, as you know, once you get on set, it looks different than that some some artist drew for us. So we just we got to be on set, uh, you know, during prep and and mark, mark map it out ourselves. And, and uh, it seems that it seems to be working. We we have a very good. Obviously, we've worked a couple times now together. Um, we have a very good shorthand, and it makes it a lot a lot easier to to know what the other one's thinking. 
what were the what were your visual influences for this film? Because you have a you've got a grit to it, but there's also a, a beautiful polish to it. At the one fourteen hour fourteen mark, you have the most incredible nighttime shot of the city with the lights and the buildings and the inky blue black sky, and it is so bright, and you just elevate the emotional tone as to the hope. It's not often you think of hope and something inspiring with just a nighttime, clear, beautiful shot. But you achieve that, so I'm curious. I think we all steal from everything else we've seen before in the past. I mean, I, you know, both Shelley and I are photographers, and so that, I think a lot of, of the visual style comes from our, our love of, of the visual image and just trying to come up with a, an interesting way to, to look at things, and, but, but always coming back to character. To really, to really understand it from a character point of view, um, and it, it's you know it, obviously we do the handheld stuff when when the emotion is high and the action is there. Um, you know, I think in the you know the fights in the hotel room it, mm-hmm. it, or the shootouts at the end and the in the in the safe house. You know, that's obviously we try to bring the energy with the, with the camera work. But 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 whenever we went to our love story, we really wanted to slow it down, slow the camera work down. You know, make it so that that is the heart, that's the glow of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so for, for us, it was a, contrasting those two worlds that basically Tom is, is, is dancing between, you know, his, his old world and his new world. Mm-hmm. And it really comes together in the hotel room uh, that one night as Annie is actually sitting there watching and just being bowled over you know, with what she's seeing. And you change, the entire color palette shifts there. You get a beautiful golden glow with your lighting and even down to the, to the wall tone, the sheets on the bed. Very nice metaphor in there. You, you have a very good eye. So you've done this for 34 years for a reason. <laughs> I've got to ask you, because of you have a great balance here between those slower moments where we really get to savor and appreciate and enjoy Annie and Tom. You've got the slower moments, and then you've got you know the high-octane action that's happening. And it's not big spectacle action like a Marvel movie, like an MCU movie. It's man-on-man action, a two-car chase or a three-car chase, one man-on-one man in a hand-to-hand gunfight. And all of this, as good as Shelley's lensing can be, if you don't find the right pacing in here, you've got a problem. Michael's editing is superb. How, lo- how long were you guys in editing to find the perfect beat structure for this film? Um, I mean, I think we, we ended up being editing it for probably uh, maybe 14, let's call it 14 weeks, uh, round number, maybe 14 or 15 weeks. And, you know, I think it really was, though, us, looking at it from from every possible angle and thinking about it from a a building point of view you know to really to give it that that momentum that that ups the ante you know know, whether it's the shootout uh, between the the, when when uh, tom is in the van and and the agents are in the in the charger and the shootout there how we build up the shots to really kind of add emphasis but although if you want if you really want to dive deeper into it you know, the sound also picked up there where it's really mm-hmm. become a, a full, you know, immersive experience. Um, uh, you know, then, and then also in the, in the, in the shootout in the, in the safe house. I mean, I really, I think, I think it was really, you know, Michael has such a, such a, a keen eye to, to, to pacing out. That was his, that's his gift, I think, really, because he, he always came up with the, the, the next better idea of, of how to, how to give it a little bit more emotional or, you know, you take one frame out here or two frames here, and, and it would just change the, the, the feeling. And he's, he's really, really a gifted guy. Let me ask you, what made this the right story, Mark, for you to get back in the director's chair? Basically, I was having, I, I, did, um, I did a family man because it was based on uh, the writer who's a very good friend of mine's life uh, mm-hmm. as far as being a headhunter and, his family life, and that, that's really why. And I really wanted to direct something that was very character-based. I mean, obviously, if you've seen anything else I've done, most most of the time stuff blows up and there's a lot of action and things like that. And I really wanted to slow down and just show that, you know, uh, acting performance. And and this was really my 
let's call it a segue of sort movie where I could still have a lot of drama, a lot of heart, you know, a love story, but then start throwing in action and, and thrills and, and all the things that really, you know, is more my DNA. Mm-hmm. So for, for, for me, it was, a, it, was, it was trying to combine those two elements, you know, like, you know, people, people are going to go to see it because they want to see uh, Liam do what Liam does best and everybody knows him for. But then hopefully when they walk out of the theater, they, you know, they, they, they realize, wow, this was a, this was a love story. And maybe, you know, for women, it might be like, oh, this actually movie you know, was for me too. And it's not, not just the, you know, the fanboys uh, for Liam. And so I think that was really, for me, it was about, about combining those two elements into, into one movie. Well, you're on a streak as a director. I mean, you get Jerry Butler in a family man. You got Liam Neeson here. I, who are you going to go for next? Uh, I, I, I already know, but I'll, I'll save that for another day. But you will be back in the director's chair, yes? Uh, I'm, in, I'm in prep right now, so yes. Oh, thank goodness. Mark, such a joy. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see the next film, and I hope I get to talk to you then. Uh, I appreciate it very much. You're very kind. And that was writer-director Mark Williams talking about Honest Thief. Liam Neeson, Kate Walsh, Jeffrey Donovan, Robert Patrick. Um, just, it it's an incredible film. I love it. You will not be disappointed. And it is, it is something comfortable. And this coming weekend, take some time out, relax, and watch it. You can't go wrong with Liam Neeson. Uh, but, and... We were going to jump into another interview, but since we already have Sarah on the line, we're going to just go ahead and do that rather than just run two minutes of another interview, Uh, (laughs) uh, which was going to be with Brian Duffield talking about Spontaneous, which is out now. Um, I will undoubtedly run uh, Brian's interview next week, but Spontaneous, if you want a good laugh, it is fresh, it is funny, it is original. It is everywhere right now. See it, Catherine Langford, Charlie Plummer. Um, And there's a lot of spontaneous combustion happening to students. Um, So you'll laugh. You might cry a little, but you'll definitely laugh and you will be entertained. Uh, We'll get into spontaneous more, I think, definitely next week. Also, I want to mention again before I bring Sarah on, Haunting of Bly Manor is now available on Netflix. Um, loosely based on Henry James, The Turning of the Screw. You don't want to miss this. Written and directed by Mike Flanagan. James Neist is a cinematographer. It is another multi-part series. It is fabulous. Uh, Emily B. uh, plays plays Flora. Benjamin Evan Ainsworth plays Miles. Victoria Pedretti plays their nanny, Danny. It is creepy, it is spooky, um, and it is riveting, and it's just gorgeous to look at. Uh, Hopefully we'll be talking more about Haunting a Blind Manor uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, You will hear my James Neist interview on BehindTheLensOnline.net sometime over the next week or so. But right now... Without any further ado, let's bring the fabulous Sarah Colt on. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, of course. I have been a fan of your work for a long, long time, going back to PBS American Experience. Um, and now to see the disrupted the thing that struck me most about this documentary, at the top of the show, I gave the, uh, the listeners a brief rundown. It focuses on three average Americans, Don, a fifth-generation farmer in Kansas, uh, and which my lovely sound engineer, Pam, has advised me today is National Farmer's Day, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, Great. Cheryl, a rideshare driver, and Pete who was employed, he was a factory worker at 3M, which was shut down. And you examine all three of them, and it looks like it's over the course of a year. 
uh, based on the changing of the seasons. Course of a year or somewhere close in there. But what stands out to me is there are no talking heads here. There is no voiceover. There is no exposition. This is all observational, very verite. And the only words we hear are really from the three subjects and their families. Uh, and it's just through conversation. There's no, you're not sitting there doing QA, QA, but possibly, uh, Yes, you were somebody. You were obviously posing some questions, but based on some of the responses that we see and hear on camera, but it is very informal and genuine. They f they are average Americans uh, facing economic issues and everything else that, that's happening today, uh, and you present this very positively and. Uh, you know, what, where, where did you get the idea for the disrupted? Because all of their lives have been disrupted because of the economic situation in the United States at the middle class level. Um, where did you get the idea to tell this story? And how did you find, out of everybody in the United States, these three people? <laughs> it was a, you know, it's, like so many things, it, it evolved and grew out of, um, it really started in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. And um, uh, are you hearing me fine? I'm getting a little funny feedback on my end. I just want to make sure you can hear. We've got you fine here. We're not getting any great. any feedback or anything. Great, great. Well, so, so it, it grew out of the, um, in the aftermath of the 2016 election and thinking sort of about what had happened and uh, looking at sort of this populist movement that was happening across the country. But it was also had to do with thinking about sort of the economy and this boom on Wall Street, and but really um, knowing that there were problems which had come out of this populist movement in sort of mainstream, Main Street America, mm -hmm. and an interest in getting out of a kind of New York bubble, which is where I live in New York City, and sort of a coastal bubble, maybe, that people felt, and seeing what was really going on on the ground um, in the country. And, um, and then finding subjects was a huge job, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> we spent quite a lot of time reporting and, and and we had the idea and I worked with a partner. I brought in a partner to do this film with me because I knew it was going to be a very hard film. And Josh Gleason co-directed the film with me. And we just talked to many, many people within different industries um, because we were interested in manufacturing. Um, that was sort of an obvious one. Farming was a choice that just was clear to me from the beginning, mostly because of the sort of the cinematic aspects of it. And then we brought in somebody from the gig economy, which I think really elevated the kind of conversation within the film was to, to add Cheryl to the project. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, yes, choosing the farm, it is very cinematic. And the way you open the film with daybreak on a farm as the cows are being called from the pasture and these are the most well-directed cows I've ever seen. It's like they get to, <laughs> Dawn is calling them cow, 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 and they come because they know they're going to get some kind of food treat, and they stop at a certain point. And then they wait until he gets down on the ground and he put, gets pellets or whatever in his hands. Uh, and then they move forward. And I'm watching these cows, and where I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, uh, there was actually a farm behind our neighborhood and uh, so and it was a, there were cows and they would come right up to the fence with our property and the cows were very friendly and you know watch and then seeing this these were very friendly cows too but you as a girl from new york i can just imagine how was it being out there in the pasture in the manure well i have to say that we, um, I actually grew up not in New York City, so I'm quite used to manure. Oh, and good. My mother actually grew up on a cow farm, um, oh. a dairy farm in Massachusetts. Um, so, but I have to say, Josh was there to shoot that sequence, oh. and because we had to split up 
the, the filming because there was a lot to film all at the same time. So um, that was um, something that Josh covered. And Josh is a real, more of a real New Yorker than I am. So I think it was a <laughs> big learning curve for him. But I have to say the opening shots are just Tom Bergman just shot. Uh, absolutely stunning footage there. That is the, uh, that's the pastoral America that people flip through. That's a Norman Rockwell picture that opens this. And it really sets the tone and the heartbeat that this is about people and cows, but <laughs> people. Um, and I will say, yes, for anybody who watches this documentary, there really are that many flies circling around cows because you really get to see the flies with the sun, backlit by the sun. Um, yeah, but it is so beautiful and really sets the tone with this bucolic pastoral setting that you feel Americana so that when we then see and we move to Cheryl in Tampa and then we move to Pete uh, at 3M, you re we know these are just average people. In America, this is not some sort of setup where you pick the most vulnerable, vulnerable people or most cinematic or charismatic people. And that develops a connection that is very difficult to achieve in this cynical day and age. Well, thank you. It was really, um, you know, that contrast, I think, from kind of an idealized vision of what an American farmer you know, looks and feels like to what the reality is for most Americans. I think, you know, hopefully you get that. And I appreciate your your praise of that scene because I love that scene. And I think Tom Bergman is, you know, an ex incredibly talented director of photography. And he's his abilities in the field are just incredible. So we, we owe him a lot for the film because he was the through line throughout the filming he shot you know 90 percent of what you see in the film mm -hmm. and only didn't shoot when he just wasn't available or when we needed to be in two places at once so you mean tom has we're very grateful to him tom hasn't figured out how to clone himself yet <laughs> not yet i mean he's he's german so he's he's very he's very good at a lot of things that's it yes <laughs> you know if anybody could figure out how to do it tom could so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, how did you mention the through line? How did you go about developing a through line here? Um, because each one of these individuals, while their commonality is the middle class economy and the hardship that they are all facing, um, there's also issues of family. Uh, in Don's case, health comes into play. So I'm curious how you developed a through line. Where did you start? Did you have any idea where you would even start with each of these individuals? Was it just, okay, let's start talking uh, and see what we get before we start trying to figure out what a through line is? Talk to me about that process. Well, that was where, we, you know, we, we went out to, to find subjects and it was a you know, several months of talking to people and following up on leads and different stories. And we ended up, originally, we were following five subjects, all of whom had interesting personal stories, but also were in moments of transition. So as you know, from watching, you know, when the first, the first scene with Pete in, in Ohio is the day that he was, his factory was closing. So we were, the, we wanted, you know, we chose Pete knowing that his factory was closing so that we could be with him for that transition. But, you know, a lot of it, I mean, there were a lot of moments where we thought maybe nothing's going to happen. You know, it was nerve wracking. And, and as you know, you mentioned that I've done a, a, my work previous to this has mostly been history films, mm -hmm. which you, you know, you know what happened right. <laughs> when you're making the film. But this was a big leap um, to to choose and invest the time and the energy into subjects where we weren't sure things would happen. And certainly, um, you know, one of the sequences in the film that I love is the film is the moment when 
Don really takes over as director and told our team, I need to tell you something and I need to do it on camera. And we didn't know what was coming. And he, after a long day of shooting, he sat down and he tells, as when you watch the film, you'll see that he tells us with his wife by his side that he has been um, diagnosed with cancer. And, um, you know, we, none of these things, we don't, you don't know when you're doing observational filmmaking, what is going to happen. And, and we just, things unfolded. And as we followed these families and these people through fairly tumultuous times to begin with, but we didn't, they were also just, as you say, very regular lives being Mm -hmm. led. Well, and, you know, Don, you know, you'd listen to him and he puts great stock and reverence into the history his family has, into history period, uh, when mm-hmm. he starts showing some of the old devices, uh, the sock darner, uh, which I've, se- I've seen that before. <laughs> and Really? Yes, yes. And the, and, you know, the woodcomber, uh, the woolcomber. Uh, mm-hmm. So you see these, and he shows these little bits and pieces of his family's history. And then when he, he opines, and he just, you know, stream of consciousness about his sons, and yes, he would like the farm, 900 acres. He would like it, them to carry it on, but he doesn't want them to assume the burden of the farm just to make him happy. And mm-hmm. I think that spoke volumes about who he is as a person, as concerned as he is about the family legacy and history. He's more concerned about his son's future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that right. that spoke volumes. And Cheryl, Cheryl is more fly by the seat of your pants in the, <laughs> in the dock. Cheryl, is, she's actually a, an energetic change of pace for you throughout the documentary. Um, and of course, you did get a surprise from her, too, that was caught on camera. We did. That was quite amazing. Oh, my God. I don't want to give it away. No, we don't want to give it away. But it's like, oh, my God. Um, So that. That's called luck. That. In terms of, I mean, not that, not luck for what happened, but luck that we were there. And boy, you caught that perfect view. Perfect view. Um, So, I mean, that was fabulous. And then you've got Pete. Pete, who really is, I think, perhaps the most unsettling of the three. Um, And that really comes across. Um, Number one, it's like, okay, the factory shuts down and they're all out there killing a bottle of Crown Royal. Uh, I don't know if that's in paper cups. I don't know if I would do that to Crown Royal in paper cups. But, but you have all these great moments. But then you, you, we can tell right away with Pete. Pete is, he's also an ex-felon. Uh, mm-hmm. So that sets up a different scenario for him anyway. Uh, right. And then he has family issues that we didn't, uh, totally unexpected. The one you kind right. of saw, see the handwriting on the wall. Um, right. But the other one, you know, do you embrace the, as they're happening, do you embrace these moments as things like this come out? And especially with Pete and his family. Um, do you s- take a step back and think maybe we should not show this? Maybe we should not film this? Yes. So all of those things are the the most, you know, what what we started to observe as we were filming was um, Pete's son, his youngest child, who was still living at home with him. He was heading into kind of early adolescence and having a lot of issues coming up and we could see these things starting to kind of unfold on our visits and it is a really incredible kind of responsibility to be a filmmaker who's been welcomed into somebody's life and then see some really serious you know issues facing the family and not always ones that are obvious when you're close in so sometimes you know I think Pete in some ways was um, catching up 
to understanding what was going on with his son that maybe we saw quicker than he did. Um, and it was a big deal to be there for some of the things that happened. Um, and, you know, how we edited it, you know, there were a lot of conversations in the edit room with our incredible editor, Lynn True, who really brought this film to life about what was our responsibility to Alex and how did we present this situation, Alex being Pete's son, how do we present it in a way that was fair to everyone? Yeah, because anytime you get a minor involved in particular, it's, it's, right. it's tricky enough when it's a whole family and you've got multiple people and okay it's like yeah Pete may be the subject but then you've got the wife and you have other family members or friends or something uh, same thing with Don of course Don being nope I want I got to say this on camera I'm doing this um and Cheryl also very outgoing you know I'm sure she was the whole was uh just perpetually keep the camera rolling um she comes across as that kind of person but but in fact, she's not, which is weird. Like, so interesting. She's got a ton of energy and very dynamic, but she had a lot of, um, uh, you know, I mean, she agreed to make the film, but then she had moments of, did she really want to be doing certain things? It was, it was, in, so it's interesting that you have that impression because yeah. it's always, um, different, the re, the process and then what it feels like. Yeah, she comes across as, and she admits, she admits that, yeah, she didn't, doesn't consider herself a people person and she doesn't like talking to people, but now she can talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. And right. and her thing, find the commonality. And, yeah. and that's what she does. And she is very comfortable on camera and mm-hmm. fun. <laughs> she is. She is fun. <laughs> and, you know, watching her with her grandbaby uh, was just adorable. But, you know, but concerning, though, was when you've got a minor involved, how much of a say with Alex, with Pete's son Alex, did Alex have any say as to whether he wanted to be on camera? Did his father say, yes, you're going to be on camera? Was there any back and forth in that respect? Because I know if I if I were Alex's age, I'd say get out of my face. You know, there was. Um, I think Alex enjoyed our presence. Frankly, I think um, he he was going through a very difficult time, and I think there was something um, something that he could look forward to with our visits. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had Tom Bergman was our our. DP, and then we have a wonderful sound person named Nico Chappelle, who's French and quite young, and he had a lot of fun with Alex, and Alex had a lot of fun with him. And I think, you know, interestingly, Alex now, which I very sort of makes me very happy, is Alex is very excited to become a photographer, oh. and he's um, he's interning on the weekends right now. He's in his first year of high school. And Pete told me that, you know, he never would have been interested in that without meeting our crew and being part of the documentary. So Alex has seen the film, and I think it was very, very hard to watch. But I think both Pete and Melissa felt that um, it was by the time the film was finished that Alex was in a much better place and that they could Mm -hmm. use the film as a way of talking about the kind of the hard work that he had done to to, to feel better and be in a better place. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. That uh, Having seen the doc, that is wonderful to hear that about Alex. Um, I know. It makes me very happy. Uh, you know, when did you start, when did you and Josh start your editing process with Lynn? Were you editing as you went, or did you wait until you assimilate, until you got all of the material together and thought, okay, we have enough? Because with this actually, one, this is a yeah. tricky one. This is a tricky one to edit. It was really hard. <laughs> and and thank, I mean, I just can't tell you how grateful I am to Lynn because she, she came on board in January of 2019. So the bulk of the footage had been shot. Um, we still did shoot in 2019 um, up through the fall of 2019, but not as regularly and 
we didn't have, you know, as we weren't gathering as much as we had through the course of 2017 and 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lynn spent several months just going through every single bit of footage that we had gathered. And, you know, for a film like this, we kind of approached it as the three separate stories to try to figure out what were the arcs within the three stories. But then, of course, we had to interweave the three stories. And so that was where it became, you know, very, very challenging editing process. Mm-hmm. How much footage do you think you had? I should know that. I should know that. I mean, it's about, I think, 300 hours or something. Well, considering you're, pro- you're, you're profiling three people over an expanse of a couple years, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Daunting for Lynn. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Wow. You know, how did you and Josh divvy up directorial duties? Um, Was it predetermined? Was it, okay, I can go here, I can go there? Because obviously you had many, many trips to each one of these individuals. Um, Yes, well, that was, that was, um, I was finishing a film when we first started working on this film. So this is always the challenge of filmmaking. <laughs> How do you keep everything going at the same time? And Josh joined my, the project in June of 2017 and, um, did a tremendous amount of research. And then once we started filming, we kind of quickly broke it up between the three stories that Josh was going to Kansas and Florida mostly, and I went to Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became sort of, that broke down well for lots of reasons. I think personality-wise, it was a good fit for me to be with Pete. Um, and then Kansas was a very long trip to get to Kansas. And I was... Um, I also have a small child, so going to Kansas on a frequent basis was difficult for me. Um, so we just we kind of split it up that way. And you know, we, in the in the film, when we do that Fourth of July sequence where mm-hmm. we're kind of with all of them on the same day, that w- that was the most kind of challenging <laughs> from a kind of scheduling perspective. But we were very lucky that year because the Fourth of July landed on a Wednesday. So some people's celebration was Wednesday and some people, like Don, celebrated on Saturday. So it allowed us to be in two places at the same time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So so who gets the benefit of all the frequent flyer miles here? You you or, or Josh? <laughs> uh, Josh got his miles, definitely. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my gosh. And then you go and you add in Troy's beautiful score subtle oh yeah it is lovely it is subtle um it's not overpowering it lets the stories remain the focus as you well know so often scores be it a narrative or a documentary can overpower and Mm -hmm. lead you rather than follow and Mm -hmm. i think this is a beautiful score that troy has done here well, thank you, because I think it's beautiful, too. And I think Troy, again, is so incredibly talented. And he, we got him involved in the project when we were about at Rough Cut. And our Rough Cut was too long, and it was, you know, had some major problems. <laughs> you know, it, was, it wasn't there yet. And um, Troy really is a very, very, I mean, he's an incredibly talented composer, but he's also a very smart storyteller and producer, I would say. And he really gave us some great notes um, on the film and then brought to the table just, you know, themes that really helped define the characters and define the storytelling. So I'm just so grateful for that collaboration as well, because it did kind of elevate the film, I think. Now, this is your first independent feature documentary. Uh, when you've done American Experience, you've had PBS behind you. But here, this is Sarah out there. Low budget, no budget, micro budget. 
Uh, how was there a learning curve here for you with this one? Uh, to know that this is resting on much smaller, a group of much smaller shoulders? It was a very, very steep learning curve. And there were a lot of ups and downs, as you can imagine, whenever you're learning and doing things for the first time, you have your major lows and your highs. And so I feel, you know, it's a kind of project I've always wanted to be a part of, Um, you know, observational filmmaking is kind of the reason I went into documentary filmmaking. Um, But it's very rare to get the chance to make this kind of a film. And Mm. so it was a tremendous opportunity for me, but it also pushed me in all sorts of ways that I'm grateful for. And I'm, but it was hard. (laughs) Yeah. What would you say if the three biggest things that you learned uh, as a filmmaker, now doing this, you know, independently doing your first feature doc? Well, I would say, I think, um, I mean, some of the things that I've, I know from the other films I've made were very applicable to this, which is that you gather the most talented people around you. And that always, you know, this film is a collaborative sure. process. And so, it's a team effort and and you bring together the best team you can. And that was definitely true for this film. Um, I think one of the things is true for most filmmaking I've done, but was really had to be, you know, tested here was trusting your instincts. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we had a limited budget, so we couldn't film everything. And how do you decide whether you go back to film to Kansas, you know, and there are times when you have to just trust your gut, even if it doesn't make practical sense. You know, if that make I don't know if that makes sense, but oh, that would be absolutely. something. Um, I also think that I, le- I really learned, and this is a big one, is that editing a film like this takes a really long time. That you can't rush it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm used to working on really strict schedules. Mm-hmm. And this film, you know, we couldn't, we edited many more months than I had planned um, because I just didn't realize what kind of a beast it would be in the edit room to figure out a film of this nature. Um, I don't know if that's three things, but well, you can, <laughs> you can give more even because uh, I know so uh, a big part of our, of our listening audience is filmmakers uh, and a uh-huh. lot of independent filmmakers and, I know that mo- they appreciate getting as much insight as they can from other filmmakers. <laughs> Some of them need it. Uh, but, but. I mean, the other thing we did, which was helpful, which I've done on other films, but really made a difference on this film, was to gather colleagues and other filmmakers for screenings you know, of different various cuts and getting advice from people that I trust and, you know, are part of my kind of colleagues and friends in the filmmaking world. And um, that was really helpful, too. So now, when did you actually get this film done? Because you were still picking up footage in 2019, you said. And then we had Mm -hmm. COVID set in and lockdowns starting like March 13th. Uh, Yes. So we were lucky... (laughs) We were lucky to be done at that point. So lucky or not, I mean, there was in some ways, imagine if we had, we were still filming, it would have been fascinating as a sort of a third act to the film. But, you know, we were, we were very much done and there was no question that we, we couldn't open the film back up. Although there was sort of a moment when we thought, oh, maybe we should be filming this. Um, So yeah, the film was finished and we were just, starting to try to roll it out and get it out into the world when lockdown hit, which of course that was another steep, steep learning curve, which is how to, how to get a film out into the world. So yes, Sarah. So tell us, how do you get a film out into the world when it goes on lockdown and everything is canceled? I'm not sure I can, (laughs) I'm just laughing. I mean, you either laugh or you cry. That's just it. And I think every filmmaker same thing. Every filmmaker I've been talking to all these months and everybody's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, and 
it's do I want to give up a theatrical in order to get and so many of them I said look you're a small independent film you're a low budget no budget micro budget if you can get a, ro- a digital rollout if you can get a uh, cable you know take it mm-hmm. take it yeah you know don't hold out because who knows and as we've seen who knows when especially Los Angeles New York when we're going to get theaters back so yeah, right. you you lost. You might have lost your one week at Fine Arts or some or Lemley, but mm-hmm. y- you recoup something if you get it digitally out there and people can at least buy it on iTunes and Amazon and Hulu and all those fun places. It's right. this is right. this is a, a real slippery slope this year for all for every filmmaker. Yes, it's been very tough, and and I feel like with. With our film, we wanted to get it out into the world. In an ideal world, we wanted to get it out before the election because it feels like a film that you can really start conversations about yeah. where we are as a country um, and what what are our values and where do we want to be. And um, So I'm pleased that we figured out, sort of at the last minute, we figured it all out, but it came together very um circuitously, I would say. I mean, that's the thing that I think is the hardest part of independent filmmaking. I'm, you know, I'm used to, and I feel very lucky to have had this amazing experience making commissioned films where when you start the project, you get given a broadcast date usually, mm-hmm. and you know, you know where the film is going. This was a very different experience and it's a lot of um, sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> would you do it this way again? I mean, I'd love to make another film like this again. I mean, you know, sort of in this kind of much more open, independent way Mm -hmm. again. I definitely learned some major lessons that I would do slightly differently, but I I don't regret anything. You know, I mean, I think this has been an amazing experience, and I'm so happy to have been able to to do it. So now with three weeks to go until the election, where can people see the disrupted? Well, so the um, exciting thing is that we did end up having a theatrical release for this film. It's a virtual theatrical release, and we were in uh, 40 art house theaters across the country. We're still in about, I think, 35 theaters through at least the end of this week. And if you go to our website, thedisruptedfilm.com, you can see a list of all, if you go under where to watch or watch, you'll, you'll see um, and you can buy a ticket. And what's wonderful about that is that that goes towards local theaters who are all really struggling, oh. um, struggling before the pandemic and then struggling terribly now. Um, so that's a great way to see the film. But I also the exciting news is that tomorrow we go on um, live on a video on demand for Amazon Prime, Google Play and iTunes. How fabulous. So, in other words, tomorrow, while everybody is doing their uh, their Amazon Prime buy day or whatever it is for the next two days, when they need a break from shopping, they can hop onto Amazon Prime and watch The Disrupted. Exactly. Yes. So, they're already in Amazon. Just, just jump the Amazon platform. So, while you're <laughs> spending money, if you, if you need to, to pull yourself back, you can watch the disrupted, and it may make you rethink some of what you're buying. Uh, but you're one-stop shopping to come tomorrow. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, Sarah, this has been so much fun having you on the show today. I hope you'll come back on again. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me and for being so kind about our film. We're very appreciative and hope that people will have a chance to watch. And do you have another film project you're working on now, or is that in abeyance because of the pandemic? I'm actually, I am working on a film. I'm working on a history film, but I, it hasn't been announced yet. So okay. I can't tell you what it's about, but it'll be hopefully broadcast sometime later next year. Well, if it's you in history, I'm in. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, you it. You do them so beautifully and so well. So, uh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much, and I look forward to the next film and the next time we chat. That's I would I do too. So, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sarah.
Bye-bye. Okay, have a good day. Bye. And that was Sarah Colt, The Disrupted. Still in some theaters around the country, not in L.A. County or in New York. But tomorrow, VOD, your digital platforms, and yes, on Amazon Prime. So while you're shopping, when you get tired of shopping, you can watch The Disrupted. Uh, and it is it, it is one of the best documentaries I've seen this year. It's one of the best documentaries that speaks to the economic condition of the average American in tumultuous times without beating you over the head, without preconceived notions. Uh, and the cows look really cute. And you can't beat Tom Bergman's cinematography. So that is all the time we have for today. Who do we have next week? I'm looking. Who do we have next week? Ah, I'm not sure who we have next week. But next week you will hear uh, Brian Duffield's, our exclusive interview with Brian, talking about Spontaneous. And mark your calendars, folks. The 26th of October. My two, two of my favorite brothers... Not my brothers, their brothers. Uh, Charlie and Vlad Parapolides will be here talking. They will be talking live with us about their new Netflix series, animated series, Blood of Zeus. I've been watching some of the episodes. It is so cool. And that's, that's, it, it is, it's so cool. So I'm so excited that Charlie and Vlad are going to be joining us on the 26th of October. Uh, so make sure you mark your calendars for that. But that is all the time we have today. So you can always find out more on BehindTheLensOnline.net, uh, Facebook, Twitter, MovieSharkD. I'm around. Movie reviews and interviews are as well. So until next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.